This is episode 111 of Alohomora for November 22nd, 2014. Greetings, Alohomora listeners, and welcome back to our global reread of Harry Potter. I'm Michael Harley. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Allison Sigurd, and today's guest is author Mindy Arnett. Thanks for joining us, Mindy. Thank you. I am completely thrilled to be here. Tell, Tell us a little, little bit about, about yourself. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I write young adult uh, fantasy and science fiction. Uh, I have the Arkwell Academy series, which is our uh, murder mystery set at a magical school. Uh, and I also write Avalon, which is about a group of teenage spaceship thieves. I am also a ritualistic listener to the Harry Potter audiobooks. I get through them about twice a year. Uh, so all of my pronunciation will be the way Jim Dale says it on the audiobook. So I'm just going to apologize for that now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. She's definitely qualified to be here. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, oh, Mindy, uh, we always ask this of our special guests, but what is your Hogwarts house? I am Ravenclaw. All Ooh, the way. Of course. Uh, Could have guessed. Right. Could have guessed. <laughs> I was sorted into it in Pottermore and it was probably very genuinely close to what I would be if Hogwarts were real. It's not real. Oh, it's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> kind of one of those things where it's like between asleep and awake. Right. Like, it's, you know, it's as real as you make it. If it's, it's real, real, I'm going to be very upset because I didn't get invited. So we're all pretty upset about that. Yeah. Um, this week, we will be talking about Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 33, titled Fight and Flight. Uh, so be sure to read that chapter before proceeding with our main discussion. But before we get into chapter 33, we're going to recap our comments from chapter 32. Uh, we had a lot of good comments this week from last episode. Um, so we just had to pick a few, of course, because that always happens. Um, but there were there were several, several trends um, kind of going throughout the comments. And the first one was Harry's saving people thing. And our Ooh. first comment comes from Hufflepug who says, I don't think the saving people thing is really a result of selfishness. Whenever someone accuses him of that, he blows up and tells them that he didn't choose for his life to be that way. Yes, Harry often reacts to danger like he needs to be responsible for others' safety. But instead of a selfish I'm a hero kind of thing, I think the saving people thing mostly stems from his intense fear of losing loved ones. He's already lost his three biggest parental figures at school for the time being. He thinks about his parents a lot. We all fear death, but I think it's a little bit more intense than normal for Harry, who has already been through so much and can't bear the thought of losing someone else. It's hard to think that someone you love is being tortured without being there to do anything about it. That doesn't justify his impulsiveness, of course, but it's really understandable that he would act so strongly on his feelings in a situation like that. I like this one because I think it's I think it's true. Um, Harry never really thinks about what he's doing, does he? That he's saving people for no. saving people. Right. And I think that that's kind of what the point is. You know, I was listening to your podcast last week when you all discussed this and, you know, and there was a conversation about, um, you know, in the end when he, he makes the decision, it's completely selfless act. I think it has more to do with him taking the time to make the decision and to not go off all half cocked like he does on all the earlier books. And I think that's kind of where his character transforms, um, more so than it being about, cause his, he's noble and wanting to save them all the way through and he's willing to sacrifice himself from the beginning. But I think it has more to do with making that conscious choice rather than just running around and, you know, 
jumping into the fray. Yeah. Um, and this uh, upcoming chapter is, is just another example of how things just happen in front of him. And he's like reacting, but it's like, it's kind of crazy when you think about like the life of Harry in the early books. Um, he doesn't have that time for reflection. Right. Like Minnie, like Minnie was saying. Yeah. All right. Our next comment come from, comes from Skagai, who um, says, I am still puzzled over the hero aspect of the subtext. Hermione claims Harry has a saving people thing and then uses Harry's rescue of Gabriel as an argument for her proposition. Harry then recalls Ron describing that situation as acting the hero. How, in any way, is what Harry did in Goblet of Fire a bad decision? And how is acting the hero different than being the hero? They both require the same sacrifice. What is negative about it? Furthermore, how is any of Harry's decisions to save people different than his decision in Deathly Hallows? I know Rowling wants us to see a difference, but to me, there is none. Harry, over and over again, reacts to injustice and reacts absolutely to absolute injustice. That's an interesting thing to bring out the to bring up the the decisions in Deathly Hallows because I don't really think yeah. when I think of Harry's decisions here I don't really think forward to what he's gonna do. Um, no, mm-hmm. uh, well, so last week we last week we got into this argument about well, no, it's not really an argument it's a discussion about um, Harry versus Harry in Book Seven, and that's kind of what fuels the second half of this comment um, in terms of him actually becoming a hero, but. Honestly, I wondered the same thing and just didn't bring it up in the episode last week because in Goblet of Fire, like this whole – Hermione's whole point, the way she presents it to Harry about him having a saving people thing hinges on the idea that Gabrielle really wasn't in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I recall talking about that when we discussed that chapter. Uh, this is the second task in Goblet of Fire about whether or not the charges were in danger because the riddle from the eggs like implied heavily that they were – yeah, but we no. just thought, oh yeah, it wouldn't be in Dumbledore's character yeah. to kill them. But I mean, Hermione. So like, the only way anybody has any weight or any shade to throw at Harry here is if they really weren't in danger, and if it were like widely known that they weren't in any danger at all for him to then have gone and saved her. But he believed it was real. Like, mm-hmm. and who can blame mm-hmm. him? So mm-hmm. he he was a hero then. I think he wasn't just acting one. Yeah, no, the, I agree with we that. we talked at length about the thing with Gabrielle, and I think we all came to the agreement that it was kind of weird that everybody else reacted to Harry doing that the way they did because of the way that the the uh the poem was phrased by the mer people um so it was perfectly reasonable for him to think that they were going to die um but because <laughs> yeah. really yeah. we've taken the thing you care about most hey plus like considering the things that have happened in past years at hogwarts which have been harry's only experiences at hogwarts every <laughs> single year horrible things happen and something true. is hanging over his head that year even if it may not be directly in that task it does end up of course being the third task so his concerns aren't completely unjustified so i think you know because a lot of the comments here are trying to kind of justify that maybe Hogwarts has kind of given Harry some psychological damage with why he thinks he needs to save people. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. Like, you know, I I do appreciate Hermione being there to ground Harry, and I do get annoyed that he doesn't listen to her in this instance. But at the same time, the, the fact that really, because of the way this has all gone down and the perfect timing of everything, the perfect storm that we have no proof that Sirius isn't okay. So I, you know, when I first read the book, I was all for it. I figured creature saying what he said to Harry in the fireplace was enough proof for me. So, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's all a big, um, it's all a big, uh, mis- case of misdirection. Yeah. In the end. 
Right. And, you know, I actually feel a little bit differently. I feel when I was reading the books the first time, I think by the time you get to book five, you realize that pretty much everything Hermione says is right. Uh, with, with the only exception, I think, being uh, where she doesn't take Draco seriously uh, in book six, which we haven't even gotten to yet. So anytime Hermione is being the voice of reason, I'm going, you know what? That's really what's going to happen. So for me, I, I was like, Harry, what are you doing? Like, this is so obviously a trap. I mean, you know, Hermione is the, you know, she's just that voice of reason through the whole series. So... Well, he listens to her in the last chapter. He does go to the fire right. and like screw the whole plan. He allows her to delay him for several hours. Right. Um, so he kind of listens. Right. No, but, but you know, with J.K. Rowling's misdirection through all the books. So the moment she says, look over here, it's so bad. I know that something's coming from the right. And Hermione tends to yeah. be that, <laughs> that compass of where it's coming from. So, but yeah. not that I didn't enjoy it completely, but just. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Well, Absolutely. I, and like I said, the re- I think the reason I fell for it just as much as Harry did the first time was, and I knew something wasn't right, but I still did. I still wanted Harry to go, and I really felt that creature or creature saying what he said was just definitive proof because I think, as you guys were talking about Rowling's misdirection, she had built up house elves so well that we figured creature had to be telling the truth right yeah because of the rules of how house elves work and of course we didn't realize that creature was kind of double playing people right. yeah um, or just well his family was on both sides yeah of the war. that he had an extended family to go yeah. to <laughs> yeah, yeah that was, there, there was a clause so in the house maybe the black family tree should have been pointed out a little, a little <laughs> <more> <laughs> um uh. not that it had its own chapter or anything in this book <laughs> Well, speaking of Hermione, that brings us into the next comment um, that was talked about a lot this week. And that was a lot of Hermione love, but we also got a little bit of Hermione doubt. Um, well, Ooh. as in doubting Hermione. Um, Skagai writes, uh, Hermione in this chapter, like the entire book, does exactly what Voldemort does only for good. In her confrontation with Umbridge, Hermione uses Umbridge's fears against her. She does precisely what Voldemort is doing to Harry at this exact time. Take what someone cares about, self-importance, belittling Dumbledore power, and make that person believe they will lose it unless they do exactly what you want them to. I find this so Whoa. fascinating that Hermione right. is being a manipulator at this moment. Right. And and a foil. It, you know, it does it make Hermione wrong for doing this because she's doing it for good? Or that I that's a wonderful comment. That's yeah. absolutely well and it that as we were saying before, it speaks to Hermione's Smarts, because if, you know, Voldemort is a smart person um, overall. So to, to say that Hermione is... Because this will come up... This has already come up in this book where she's she's done a Voldemort thing where she uses the galleons that are enchanted to inform the order about oh, meetings. And, right. she, and she based it off of the tattoos from the Death Eaters. Right. Um, so, yeah, she is subverting that kind of that way of thinking to use it for her their side oh. interesting so, yeah right hermione's on it you guys now i see where all that hermione draco fan fiction comes from <laughs> oh gosh oh no oh no <laughs> maybe not maybe not no no oh this is why i love her because she does <laughs> things like this anyway um however we got another view from raven who says, I am getting a bit tired of the Hermione worship. She's brilliant and a great character, but she's no Mary Jane. She's not right about everything all the time, and she's often quite annoying. I love her character, but she's not perfect, nor is she always right. Whoa. Which hurts me to say. Whoa. Raven. Right. Slow oh. down. 
but you're right. <laughs> but me. but still, <laughs> I, <laughs> slow yeah. down. Yeah, there's there's well, who's the Mary Jane that she references? Mary Jane, like she means like a Mary Jane character. Right. Mary Jane is a is a perfect character. Right with no oh. with no flaws. Yeah. Oh, okay. not to be confused with Mary Sue. But right, I think she probably meant. It I think Mary that might Sue. be what you meant. Right, but it's, oh. it's kind of no. Well, Mary Sue is like a fly, is like a representation of like yourself. So like it's it's it tends to be. There's an element of that too, but yeah, Mary Sue can stand for the same thing. Yeah, interesting. Okay, the um yeah, but I you know look, we'll find in the in this coming chapter again how Hermione doesn't quite think everything through. How she is wrong in certain ways in certain places and times, and I think that'll be. So uh, I think we'll suspend disbelief about Hermione's perfection until the well, chapter discussion. And I think Mindy mentioned too, and that's perfect for this particular comment, but Hermione does get kind of annoying in Half-Blood Prince. Um, and because she's not listening to Harry and some people argue and we'll get there, but that that's a consequence of Harry's behavior in these chapters. Um, but no, I, I don't think when we when we pile the love on Hermione... I don't think we we are saying that she's perfect. I think in a way we actually like her because she's not. Right. She's still the exactly. MVP of yeah. the dream team. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. She. That's I mean, my girl. I think we've we've even questioned a lot of things about Hermione's shining moments, like uh, her stuff with how self writes and how she approaches it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things that I think heretofore a lot of people do kind of just cheer her on for, but uh, we have kind of picked apart some flaws in her approach to things and definitely in her approach to how she interacts with Harry and Ron from time to time. But I definitely think that's what makes her such a great character is these moments where she does these things. It's it's really this competition between her head and her heart and they're kind of (laughs) fighting each other out. And so that's what you can see her using both. And I think that's Uh what makes her such a great character is it makes her so well-rounded and so much more dimensional that oh, she yeah. has both I, I of these think sides. Perhaps, uh, maybe an indicator, just trying to leave this comment behind um, to move on, but I think that, uh, you know, perhaps what might lend some insight into Hermione, whether she's evil or not, uh, <laughs> is, is you know, the fact that she, that she cannot cry. Um, you know, she is pretending to cry, but no tears are coming from her eyes. Harry mm-hmm. notices this in the last chapter. Oh, pfft. Um, and maybe it would mean she was more evil if she could really cry, you know, to, to, to heighten the deception. Right. I I don't think there's any evilness going on. I would say that you could make an argument about nature versus nurture between Hermione and Voldemort. So like Hermione could have been Voldemort if, if she had grown up in that situation without, you know, without parents and, that would, was kind of more what I meant in terms of, you know, letting them be foil characters. So she's really brilliant, but she had loving parents, presumably. And, you know, so you have that kind of nature argument going on. Yeah. yeah. Well, All right. and just, I have to say, last thing I just have to say is that Hermione, <laughs> we, the, the, I think the reason I champion kind of highlighting Hermione still is that as much love as she gets in the fandom, her little moments are so important and there are a lot that I think we forget about. And really quite honestly, I do joke about this with people, but sometimes I feel it's totally sincere to say you could retitle the books after her. <laughs> right. And, Cause she yes. has, yeah, she does a lot. And sometimes we forget just how much she does. Right. Yep. Well, thanks for that. We also have lots <laughs> of other good discussions. Sorry. <laughs> on, um, <laughs> On, on the main site about Umbridge's character, 
There was lots of Luna love, um, some discussion about Snape's action, both um, with occupancy and when Harry tries to warn him, and a lot more. So if you want to go check out the discussion on alohomora.mugglenet.com. But for now, we turn to our responses from last week's podcast question of the week. And that question was, in this chapter, Harry and Hermione go into Professor Umbridge's locked office with the knife Sirius gave Harry so that Harry can use the private flu network to check on Sirius. Umbridge ends up capturing them along with a few others with the help of the Inquisitorial squad. Malfoy retrieves Snape. And before Snape leaves, Harry gives him the message about Padfoot being captured. What do you think would have happened if Malfoy weren't asked to retrieve Snape? Would Snape still have been a part of the scene and been able to warn the Order about the trio's disappearance? Would the Order have even showed up to the Ministry of Magic? So there were actually a lot of pretty interesting responses. There was an overall agreement that the Order would have figured it out and Snape would have figured things out, but perhaps later than uh, in the book. Uh, But a very fascinating uh, response came from Bill White on our main site. And Bill said, I think that if Snape hadn't been called, that maybe, just maybe, Harry would have remembered the mirror and contacted Sirius that way and therefore debunked Voldemort's plans. If Harry remembered the mirror, then there would have been no reason to notify Snape. Now, of course, keep in mind that Harry doesn't actually know that the present is a mirror. Oh, because he hasn't opened it. Nope, because he threw it at the bottom of his trunk. Um... But it's an interesting thing because at least he could have, might have remembered that Sirius gave him a gift. I'm inclined to think no. I do too. But I would love it if that had happened. Maybe this is more of a wish fulfillment comment (laughs) than anything. But I don't, because the idea, of course, of the mirror being there is later when Harry does find it, there is that realization for the reader that if Harry had found it, um, of course things would not have gone, perhaps gone down the same way. Um, but with that wish fulfillment in tow, there has to be the possibility that Harry even would have found the mirror or remembered it. Um, and I don't think he would have, or even right. thought of it as something useful. So, Okay. How would he have gotten away to go find it? Oh, like gotten away from all the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, the pre- the pressing issue is that Umbridge is about to crucio him. Mm-hmm. Like... And that I think she would have gotten to that if if Snape weren't around, you know, in the picture. She would have gotten to that just as quick. Harry's really good with Axio these days, though. Maybe he could have summoned <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but we had a very interesting um, set of comments from Wizard or What and uh, Cyan Girl. They actually weren't in response to each other, but they both came up with different results for what would happen with Snape and Sirius in the scenarios. Wizard or and what? And now you've, you've pitted them together. I have. Because <laughs> it, says in the, it says in the show document, Wizard or what versus Cyan Girl. <laughs> oh, yeah. They, I'm making the brawl out of this because they, I, they did it, but unintentionally. Um, okay. But Wizard or what said the order would have arrived later, in which case the kids might have been in trouble and maybe Sirius wouldn't have ended up being left alone dueling Bellatrix. So dead trio, but live Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> and then the story wouldn't have been nearly so good, which is presumably why Rowling had the story pan out the way it did. Um, hmm. Whereas Cyan Girl suggested, Snape would notice Umbridge having left the castle and not returned, and given all the occlumency lessons and what he knew from Dumbledore, I expect the Department of Mysteries and Voldemort, having played some kind of trick, would be the first thing to enter his mind. All that would really be different would be the timing, I reckon. The order might have been even later... Or he might not have taunted Sir- or he might not have taunted Sirius as much when alerting the order, 
not knowing Harry was under the delusion that he was saving his godfather. But Sirius was looking for an excuse to go out and fight either way, so I doubt that would have made a difference for his fate. So with these two things in mind, do you think that Sirius could have potentially survived by this minor difference? No. No. No? Just because for the overall plot of the series, he had to die. And I hate saying it, (laughs) but he had to. And it hurts. But I don't know. I, I don't I never ever agreed with let's kill all the boys' mentors before he can be a hero. I've never ever agreed with that. Really? I, I wanted Harry to be mm. absolutely happy with his godfather ever since book three and when that didn't happen and then it didn't happen and then it didn't happen and then Sirius died, I just felt terrible. <laughs> well and I think <laughs> in a way because we've really I examined this more than any reread I've ever done with Order, but um I think the way that Sirius is built up in the in the fifth book to really be shown from the get-go that he's actually probably not a very good caretaker for Harry. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it's so unfortunate. So he deserves to get it? Yeah, that's exactly what I was Like, in literary terms, that's that means Lord. he has to die. Right. In literary well, no terms. He's still better than the Dursleys. I mean, come on. You know, yeah. for sure. He didn't yeah, die. Yeah. So. And they all survived. Correct. No, um, I think I think getting back to this comment though, um, you know, with with Sirius being alive, like I'm, as much as I want that to be true, I'm not sure. Like, the, may there's something to it in the uh, Cyan Girl's comment about how Snape taunts Sirius, how we find out later that he taunted him about yeah. the whole situation, and maybe he would not have laid it on so thickly if 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 he weren't aware of Harry's specific delusion. Um, but at the same time, I mean, Snape or sorry, Sirius has been cooped up all year and I highly doubt the rest of the order would have had been able to take the time to make sure that he stayed home uh, on this outing, which was clearly to save Harry and his friends. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think the end result, yes, is Sirius does go to the ministry. Um, unfortunately, but, but it could have been someone else dying in his place. I mean, I don't think the issue is that he went. I think the issue is that he was fighting Bellatrix. Yeah, I mean, I I would have to um, definitely reread the you know the next two chapters to really uh, determine what I think about you know kind of if what circumstances led to it specifically being serious, specifically and Bellatrix alone in that room. Mm-hmm. Right. And our last comment uh, from the podcast question of the week comes from. Hufflepug, and they, again, a lot of the commenters were wondering um, that whether the order would get there on time or not. A lot of you seem to agree that they would come later, which of course would leave an opening for Voldemort to potentially kill Harry, since Voldemort never seems to get to do that for time constraints. Um, <laughs> and um, Hufflepug said, "What would have happened to Harry if Voldemort had used the killing curse on him in the Department of Mysteries? Would he have experienced an?" otherworldly scene like the one in Deathly Hallows, perhaps with his parents filling in for Dumbledore's role? Or would he have not woken up because it wasn't a willing sacrifice? So, and we've pondered this before about different occasions where Voldemort, if he had stopped monologuing, would have actually just killed Harry. (laughs) And what what would have happened? Um, I don't really... These always kind of leave me just speechless, because I don't really know what, what would occur. Um, the, uh, the big question here too is, is whether Harry would be given a choice to come back to life. 
Uh, I would need to read. Like, do we know why he was given that choice? I mean, it's he went oh. willingly. In order for the Horcrux to be destroyed, he had to like die willingly, right? Right. Is that okay? Yeah. So is something confirmed? I thought um, I thought the Horcrux could be destroyed the way it was, but the dying willingly, I thought, was the thing that gave him the chance to. I don't know. Come back. <laughs> I thought the dying willingly just protected everyone else. Right. Well, there's, yeah. I mean, it's ambiguous. I don't think that it's stated anywhere specifically that even that he actually dies. I think that's kind of up to the reader. Right. Uh, right. I choose to um, believe that he did. But I think, you know, uh, maybe the fact that some, another piece of him got to die at the same time, the piece that, you know, the actual Horcrux, that maybe that's mm-hmm. what gave the ability. So in that case, yes, I think that if the scene happened here, he probably would be able to come back. But then we would only yeah. have five books, and, you know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, and seven, seven is the most magically powerful number. Right. you got to have seven books. I'd like to think an awesome battle between Harry and Voldemort, like the one that I wanted and never got, would actually go down. <laughs> no. <laughs> only Dumbledore is equipped with the right level of yeah. magic. Yeah. Yeah, Harry wouldn't be competent enough in fifth year to, to battle. I can't, I can't nope. wait. I, I, cannot, I just I figured wait. Voldemort would just be in shock if Harry just stood back up after <laughs> after the whole dramatic yeah. scene. Voldemort would die of shock yeah. at the end of the series. <laughs> that would but be less dramatic. There were a lot of great comments that uh, came in for the podcast question. I wanted to shout out to Dolphin Patronus. Uh, I see Thestrals, Olivia Underwood, and Snuggle- Snuggles with Nifflers for also contributing to our comment section. <laughs> Uh, this week thank you so much and if you guys want to check out what some of our other commenters contributed make sure and head over to the alohomora main site all right guys are you ready for it yes 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 <laughs> now it's time to discuss the chapter Yay. chapter 33 fight and flight no 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 unhand me i am So, in this chapter, which we get to uh, now, which is, wait, what is this called? I'm so mad. <laughs> flight, flight, and fight, and fight, and fight, and fight, and fight, fight, or flight. You know, fight or flight is a thing. Yes. Okay. Uh, in this chapter, fight and flight, Hermione leads Harry and Umbridge into the Forbidden Forest, where they meet the proud centaurs who drive Umbridge away but turn on Harry and Hermione. In the nick of time, Grop arrives and saves them. Ron, Luna, Neville, and Ginny have escaped the Inquisitorial squad and meet up with Harry and Hermione, and they all depart the forest for the Ministry, riding Thestrals. So, super action-packed chapter. It's shorter than the last one, but just as complex. This chapter. (laughs) Why? What? What is it? It's so... (sighs) This chapter is so tied in with chapter 30, as we've talked before, which I have great animosity for um, because of the Grop stuff. And it's funny rereading this chapter over again. I'm just like, God, this chapter is ridiculous. So many insane things happen and nobody is thinking clearly in this chapter. It goes so fast. It's such a mess. So Okay. Well, then you have characters acting out of character, which is the only part that bothers me about the chapter, but I I totally Mm -hmm. agree with you on that point here. So, Well, uh, feel free to uh, bring all your thoughts up as we go along. Oh, Um, we will. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't be shy, guys. You all hated this chapter that I I loved. I do hate it. I love every chapter, but there's... Oh, no, no, no. I don't hate this one, Eric. 
there's points where I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. And, you know, but other than that. We'll get okay. there. <laughs> well, well, this is this is perfect then. We'll have a great discussion. So uh, let's start it off as uh, they are going down the Hogwarts corridor, the corridor outside of Umbridge's office and out onto the grounds. It becomes clear that Hermione is continuing to play on Umbridge's fears and her dislikes to sell the story. There's this moment where Umbridge is like, oh, you're hiding the weapon in Hagrid's cabin. And Hermione's like, oh, no, he totally set that thing off by accident. And Umbridge is like, yeah, he would so do that. He's so stupid. Oh, my gosh. I hate that line. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with Harry on that one, where he wants to turn around and strangle her. <laughs> yeah, but Hermione started it. So <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. But Hermione um, started it to manipulate Umbridge. So we're going to give Hermione a pass on, uh, no, on that yeah, role playing. This. I guess it's just it's really intelligent what Hermione's doing as always. I mean that is it's just it's a continuation of what we were talking about in the previous chapter though about her how Hermione is playing on Umbridge's fears and paranoia right. in order to gain the upper hand. Her plan is kind of reckless though. Now Harry notices they're 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 going into the forest and they're not going towards Grop. They're actually going towards Aragog. And there's this moment where Harry really wants to tell Hermione, "Hey, what what the heck? Like." There's some dangerous stuff here. Like, you don't know where you're going, and this is going to be dangerous for us. And Hermione, on the other hand, is stomping loudly, cracking twigs and branches, shouting back to them. You know, it, it's like she's cool, but I feel like she she is very easily in over her head in this plan. She did not so, make this plan all the way through. <laughs> like, how con- how much control do you think she has over these events of what happens in this chapter moving in girl's got no control oh she's she mindy i actually want to ask you about this because this is something we talked about and something that a lot of i've heard actually different writers say how they would have handled this um because the movie of order of the phoenix tries to retool this where hermione's actually leading umbridge to grop on purpose Right. And Grop just happens not to be there, which, in my personal opinion, was exactly what I thought Hermione was trying to do in this chapter when I first read it. And I was very surprised when it ended up being she was going the opposite way. Right. Um, and other writers have said that, like, I've I've heard a screenplay writer say that she would have dropped Grop completely from the story and just let it be the centaurs all about them. What are your thoughts on how these chapters go down with this? Um, I... I definitely agree that, that Hermione going to the centaurs makes the most sense. Um, and the reason being is because she's there in the earlier chapter when they're talking about, we won't harm foals, you know, they're, they're okay. Um, so she knows ahead of time that that's a card she can play. Whereas Grop is a complete unknown. She has no idea that he's, how he's going to react. He could just as easily kill her as he could kill, uh, Umbridge. So the fact that she's mm. trying to rouse the centaurs, makes the most sense. Um, and, you know, and it's Harry that's thinking that she's going to go to Grob. At one point, he actually says that. Uh, in terms of uh, Grob saving them, you know, I'm okay with that. Uh, he's in the book, like it or not, um, and it's a way out. I'm not sure what J.K. would have done differently in terms of getting them away from the centaurs, because the last thing we want is for, you know, Harry and uh, Hermione to be hauled back to their 
heard or wherever they exist. Yeah. Uh, and experiencing the same thing as. So you're like, yeah, we like Grop when he saves their lives. Right. You know, and I, you know, I, I, I'm indifferent about Grop. So and he, he's a tool. He's a tool that serves the plot in this case. Um, do I think she could. <laughs> Grop's a tool. Grop's a tool. It's, 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 you can, you can play that both ways. Yes. Pun intended. Um, so, you know, I'm not, I, I, there could have been a hundred different ways she could have gotten out of that aside from Grop. Um, but I definitely think the book had it right, and the, the movie definitely did not. So, but be, but before it gets better, it gets worse. Is is the issue that I have uh, at, at the moment? And this is just so they they end up um, confronting the centaurs, which may or may not have been Hermione's plan all along. Uh, you know, maybe she was really going to meet Aragog, but she <laughs> met up with the centaurs. Oh, Umbridge's uh, prejudice and her pride. Kind of a little throw Pride and Prejudice reference there. Uh, Umbridge's Pride and Prejudice gets the better of her, and she's carried away. But and like this is again, it's it's just brilliant. Uh, Umbridge asserts her authority for the Ministry, which of course is the sorest of all subjects for uh, the Centaurs because they believe that they're far more intelligent than humans, and she calls it our forest instead of your forest, and she makes all the mistakes that it's possible to make. But as soon as she's carried away, Hermione uh, thanks them and is like, oh, I, you know, we're here because I hoped that you would drive them away. And that immediately the centers turn on her and are like, oh, you wanted us to do your dirty work. Wait, you're no better. We're, we have to carry you away too. And so I think it's pretty clear that, I mean, this is gone. This is going south very fast. And my question to you guys is: Should should Hermione have known better? Abs- um, oh, absolutely. I have strong opinions on this. Not to jump in, but when I said earlier um, that we have characters acting out of character, this is a classic moment. So Hermione is brilliant, and she knows how to manipulate. Uh, umbrage and she knows she's she's seen the centaur she's absorbed you know their behavior and then she turns right around and does the dumbest thing ever and <laughs> I, it's it's dumb and it's well below it's way below her mind now thanking them i get but it's adding that on we you know we had hoped that she would save us i mean thanking them okay maybe that's just part of her polite good nature or whatever but um yeah, definitely yeah. At, at this moment i feel like we're, we're breaking character a little bit when that happens no uh well like creature welfare is kind of like her thing like I mean, and they had the Thestral uh, defense against the dark, or uh, sorry, divination teacher for a while, and I, I don't know, I, I don't remember that chapter all that well, but I, I feel like uh, she just kind of should have known that it was. I mean, seeing how irate they got over the things that they, as a people, hold dear to the, dear to, to themselves, uh, she really walked right into this huge trap all of a sudden, like immediately when it was almost safe. Right. Well, but Hermione never had friends. She dropped divination. Mm. So she hadn't ever been exposed to him. And I just, this moment, I feel like it just adds to the seriousness of this situation that Hermione is so panicked that she's not even saying things clearly the way she should. She's not thinking things through all the way. Um, Harry is acting irrationally. Everyone's kind of going crazy because of the gravity of this situation. And no one's quite sure what to do. Yeah, well, while I usually, like, Mindy, I pretty much agree with everything you said (laughs) about Hermione's behavior, but I guess to argue the other side, Allison, I agree with you on Hermione because we have seen her lose her head when she gets into very serious situations sometimes. 
Um, I always think back to Sorcerer's Stone when she says, "There's no wood to build a fire." She's got a wand, so she and she has done that throughout the series on random occasions. She's done it in but, this book already. Yeah, yeah, she's done it here a few times. But the other, but are, are we saying that she lost her head because they were fighting, or do you think she's lost her head right from the beginning of when Umbridge broke into the room? Uh, that's what I want to say. I want to say her trying to save Harry and herself. And you know, by ext- I mean Ron isn't even there, but I-, I think that she's in this um in this mode where she's using her intelligence for to like save their skins and like nothing else matters. Yeah, I think yep. this. I think she lost her head earlier because the thing that I think now thinking ahead um, in Half Blood Prince when she says, "Oh, I'm going to go into Morgan and Burks and look at the necklace," and then she goes in and right. she's a horrible actress. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Second, we just she was just acting really, really good. Well, and by good I mean bad, leading uh Emerge into the forest by saying these horrible things about Hagrid that we know Hermione does not actually think. Or at least right. I assume that she doesn't actually think that. So so we so you see what I'm saying we have two different character motivations going on here. We have the character who fumbles and can't act for, you know, anything, and then we have the character brilliant enough to fake her tears and to say something scathing, which is actually the word uh, JK uses. She scathingly says that, you know, Hagrid is this really dumb person that would set it off. So yeah. so we ha- so there's just kind of a contradiction going on there, which is what bothers me the most about her saying that. I mean, I think that the the, the centaurs could have reacted that way Without her saying it, I don't even think it was necessary that they they might have mm. they still could have been in danger by saying, well, these these two were here and they were with her, so they're guilty by default. And you could have the same thing happen. I agree with that. Without her being so utterly stupid when she was just so brilliant, you know, five minutes before. Well, uh, and that kind of like it just raises a situation where they now need to be rescued again. Right. Like they were first rescued by the centaurs, and then Hermione had to say that thing, and then immediately they're in danger again. And it's cool because it, it tugs at like the suspense, but it only lasts for like a page, and then Grop shows up and saves them. So it's like there was this extra. It was just that there was this extra complication. They weren't going to Grop originally yeah. like he just heard them shouting apparently and ran and he's of course looking for Hagrid that is ex- you know established in the chapter that he misses Hagrid and he's heartbroken I mean, he's a heartbroken giant it's, right. it's quite sad see and that though what you said Eric is exactly why I have a problem with this with the way that that's written and why I don't think Grop is necessary because it is Hermione saying that that sets them off I assume that I mean possibly as Mindy said there's they might have actually just said that Harry and Hermione were culpable because they were with Umbridge once they had turned their attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, but just as easily, especially with what had been established two chapters ago, the centaurs could have said, oh, these are foals, leave them here in the forest, um, and gone on their way, because the centaurs really don't seem that interested in them to begin with anyway. Um, and that, and with that, you get Hermione and Harry out of the forest and back on track. And the only reason I feel that Grop comes along that we see later is that he they get their blood on him right or his blood on them and then that, oh yeah the, that's right. that was really interesting too and I'd forgotten about that we'll get to that in a little bit but um let's talk about Grop some more mm-hmm. um yeah Michael's favorite <laughs> Michael's favorite character in the whole series <laughs> uh, so Grop does arrive I know it gets complicated it gets a little bit more complicated than maybe it needs to be but Grop does arrive and saves them. Um, I, I actually felt I felt bad for Grop uh, reading this because he gets a lot of arrows in his face and he is too dumb 
I think that's not offensive. He's just too. He doesn't possess the intelligence to. I guess get the arrows out like he breaks them off but the heads like sink deeper into his skin and there's blood everywhere and he's bleeding all over here and mm-hmm. Hermione and it's it's a bit sad but he does succeed in, in in driving them away not without injury to himself so my question is I mean I, I'm starting to feel when I feel when my heart feels bad for Grop I then blame Hermione who has ha- who has hatched this plan to begin with, and you do feel bad, kind of, for the centaurs too, who've had their their pride uh, injured and really have had to um, fight Grop all year at great personal expense to them. So, is this like some form? I don't know. Is it abuse for Hermione to have taken Umbridge into the forest? Is it abuse on the forest creatures? Because she is, in a way, she's throwing her problems onto the centaurs. Like, even if you weren't this mystical race who's so proud and you know thinks you just want to ride on their back all the time isn't that basically what Hermione did by taking umbrage to them in the first place I think that would depend on whether that was her goal if I'm thinking it was, it was her, her goal yeah I, I would um, say I think it's her I don't think Gwarp was supposed to be Gwarp was supposed to come into the picture at all actually no I think that that, he wasn't that's was just a random plot event that happens to <laughs> say that. Just, but then so so then it becomes though it just becomes hey here's Umbridge she uncontrollably hates half breeds right. let's go introduce her to the centaurs and the reason this is such a big deal to me is because what happens later I mentioned this last episode too like what happens later is we find the the what we find like the traumatized Umbridge she's like in the hospital wing or something and you couldn't possibly feel bad for her because she's so evil and we hate her this book. Um, but you almost should feel bad for her because she has been through an ordeal that we can't even begin to imagine. Um, so I don't know. I'm torn just how about the practice of, you know, kind of what Hermione's plan really means in the grand scheme of what ha- what has she just done here by delivering Umbridge to these people, knowing full well that Umbridge would screw it up and get carried away. Um, you know, the... Uh... There's there's a mixture of feelings here on this one for me because Dumbledore has stated before that you'll always find help at Hogwarts. Hogwarts seems to always find a way to help its students. Um, And even though he tells the students not to go into the forest, I think he fully expects them to every time he tells them not to. And he's kind of... (laughs) Kind of mixed messages. Well, and he sends them in there for detention all the time. So really, the, the forest is kind of presented as a resource... Not really outright, but it's a resource, and Hermione uses it as such. Now, there is, I think you're right, though, there is that question of, is it, was it ethically right of her to do this, to use the centaurs? Because even though she insists that that's not what she meant, the way they perceive it is not perhaps how she meant, but it's it's still offensive to them. Right. Um. So there is, there's a, and, and a, like Mindy said, Hermione was astronomically stupid in that particular moment to not think that that was going to be a consequence. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, she should have just not said anything. She should have been like, oh, you know, and, and played it. Yeah. Well, well, let's let's pretend that that didn't happen, but Grop still intercedes because he hears the commotion and Grop gets attacked by the centaurs. I know you guys don't care about Grop at all, but <laughs> I want to say, like, oh, that is that is injury to Grop. So shouldn't, I mean, Hermione is culpable. Even if she didn't take them to Grop, Grop gets involved, becomes injured fighting these centaurs. That's on Hermione. Like, that. that is any injuries he sustains in chasing after the centaurs, that's her fault. I'm already perturbed by that piece because 
Hermione and Harry and Ron promised Hagrid that they'd take care of Grop, and they haven't. Right. Um, this is the first promise they don't fulfill, and they've left Grop alone for a few, about a week or two um, without going to visit him, so they've already done Grop wrong by this point. Um, so yeah, this, I mean, in that respect, yeah, that's, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> I <guess>. Okay. <laughs> I, I think it still kind of comes down to Hermione's intent, because if she intended... I don't think she intended for anyone to get hurt. I think she just mostly meant to scare Umbridge and get her yeah. to run off and maybe get lost in the forest. Yeah. That, um, it's probably yeah. <laughs> as a way to kind of get rid of her more than anything. So I, I, I honestly don't think Hermione was trying to get anyone hurt. Um, and I think that could be one of the reasons why she panics is because all of a sudden, there's arrows flying. Grop is knocking centaurs over. Umbridge is getting carried away. She and Harry are getting picked up, and nobody knows what's going on anymore. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. and when um, what the funny thing is, when Umbridge casts spells at the centaurs and talks to them, Hermione, by her reaction, did not expect her to do that. Well, because um, it was like, very stupid. I mean, which is yeah. <laughs> another moment where you're going, really? I mean, there's like how many. I mean, I, I I own horses, so I'm just going to tell you right now that centaurs would be really scary. Not just magically, but physically scary. <laughs> they could really hurt you at any moment. So the fact that she that she provokes one and attacks them is, uh, it's again, well, Umbridge is stupid. So yes, she probably would have. But <laughs> doing it is very, 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 very dumb. So like, why did you do that, woman? That makes no sense. Like, no way could you take on all these centaurs, but... This is, <laughs> it's so funny thinking, because I'm, I'm remembering the line a few chapter, chapters ago when Hermione actually says to Harry, oh, Harry, you're so naive. And I'm like, <laughs> Hermione, you're, yeah. you, you, a pot it's your turn to wear the naive hat. Honey. Yeah, like, this is, this is not your shining moment of a chapter. <laughs> See, Raven? You got what you wanted. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> We're not yeah. on the Hermione love there here. You are. <laughs> um, so does anybody else have anything to say? Because we're going to change pace here. So does anybody else have anything to say about uh, Grop or the forest or like them? Anything that doesn't involve the genie and the rest of the people? Bye, Grop. Bye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a comment. And this is just my own thing. There, why are there no there are no female centaurs? Does that bother anyone else besides me? It's kind of there's not. I don't think they I reproduce don't... via mitosis. No, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're, like, they're kind of like you know the uh, the, the dwarves in J.K. Rowling. You know, or uh, excuse me, in uh, Lord of the Rings, whereas you only ever see male dwarves on the page, and the centaurs are kind of the same way. So. Yeah, no. don't, they make fun, don't they make fun of that in one of the movies? They bring that up in Peter Jackson's, is it Two Towers, where uh, Gimli is talking about how the female dwarves look just like the male dwarves. Right, and they have beards and they jump out. And, yeah. yeah, they do, yeah, yeah. But, but you're right, they do. And that, that I was thinking about in particular with the centaurs. But, um. uh, yeah, I wonder, well, like, uh, in kind of like the hunter-gatherer sense, like I feel like the women would be closer to... You know, maybe they do have more uh, standard ancient uh, gender, you know, stereotyping where right. the women just don't hunt. Um, maybe with centaurs, because like this is a, a clearly a warrior party. They are all carrying weapons, and I, they're they, they're close enough. I mean, I, I just wonder like where the centaurs really live uh, in the forest in relation to where Harry Ron and Herm- or Harry and Hermione are right right now. Right. Hmm. I feel right. like the. 
I, I, I think the reason they didn't bother me is because the centaurs do end up playing such a minor role in everything. Um, and there's, so I'm not really looking for what gender, I, I guess I'm just not thinking about that when I read that and I should be, but now that you brought it up, yeah, that is, that's odd, but I, I, I can see Eric's reasoning, but I, I've just always envisioned these guys as like the advanced guard or the lookouts. Like you could never, ever, ever get like as close to the centaur where the centaurs really live to see their females before you got arrows in you. Because yeah, they right. <laughs> because they do not care for humans. We know this, and they do not care for other beings. I mean, they are so in their ways, and they right. take ownership of their territory so well that you would never be able to see a female. Well, but that's also taking you know a very human approach to it too. And remember, these are they are partially animals, and that's not that's, how it is in the animal world at all. So interesting. That's interesting. kind of my point. Like you know, in in actual you know herds, real horse herds. Um, you know, the females are actually in charge and they're the ones that are doing the protecting and, and the leading and stuff. So that's interesting. It's it's uh, I, I feel like um, maybe it's because the uh, the brain part is, you know, more humanoid. Right. Um, no, that I feel like it would adopt the more traditional stereotype. Right. No, and I, I, I would read it that way as well. But by doing that, I think we're, you know, we're putting human values on a non-human race. Yeah, no, that's true. That's compl- I'm guilty of that. Right. Well, me too. Um, I mean, for sure, because that's what I think when, why they're not there. Yeah. Um, so, changing gears slightly as we head into the second half of the chapter, Ginny, Luna, Neville, and Ron just conveniently show up right behind Harry and Hermione, <laughs> right as everything becomes totally cool again. And they happened to see Umbridge and Harry and Hermione enter the forest through a small window in Umbridge's office. Okay, and uh, they've actually escaped, and this is this is the cool part here because um, they've escaped the inquisitorial squad, and I feel like this shows tremendous um, skill. You know, Neville was barely like conscious the last time we saw him in a headlock, and so was Ron, but they all managed to escape, and still they talk about joining Harry on this quest, and he tells them. That they can't come. He first tells Luna he's extremely rude to her. He's like, we're not going anywhere if you're involved. It's terrible. It's really bad. Yeah, Why is he so mean to these people, his friends of his, who have escaped and are now joining him? Is it his saving people thing, rearing its ugly head again? Or he just genuinely, and this is like, this goes on for a while in this chapter where Ron is talking down on Ginny. He, you know, he wants it to just be him, Ron, and Hermione again. Yeah, that that part is a little weird. That well, he's insistent on that like classic setup, and nobody else can be a part of the group. I just I think you know Harry is so grumpy in this whole book. Um, <laughs> you know, angst, and when I read it the first angst. time, I was like, you know, oh my gosh, like the the angsty Harry. I just there's a part of me that just really cannot stand it. And sometimes, like it, right right before. Um, the friends arrived where he's, he's yelling at Hermione about this really dumb plan. And I'm sitting there going, and Hermione just takes it. She doesn't reply. But you know, if I, if it had been me, I would have said, well, what was your plan? Genius. I mean, you know, at least I did something. Whereas Harry <laughs> yeah. just like sitting back going, well, that was a dumb plan, but you know, you still saved us in the end, you know? So anyways, but he's that way through the whole book. I think that's kind of the point is just in that, you know, rebellious, not nice guy mode still when this is happening. Can we talk about how, wonderful it is to me that Ginny 
attacks Malfoy when they're getting away. Like, how <laughs> loyal and wonderful is that Ginny and Harry belong together? Because the first person oh. Ginny goes for with her number one skill, spell skill, is Malfoy. <laughs> and honestly, this is terrifying. The bat bogey hex. Let's take. Let's just take a minute to talk about this, okay? <laughs> the bat bogey hex. So I assume bogey. I assume it means just like bogey being the British term for booger. Yeah, it's your. Boogers. Is everybody on that same page? Uh, so I think they were like bats. Like... No, no. It's 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 your it's it's your boogers flying at you. Like they fly out of your nose. And, okay. Because well, that's, that's like a two pronged. That's a two pronged hex. Like first, you experience all of like the mucus and boogers in your nose flying out, which cannot be pleasant. But then they like have like little wingy or whatever wings, and they like fly and attack your face. Like they just come at you. Oh. <laughs> Here it is. I, I think I blocked this out on purpose. I have a, an anti mucus <laughs> thing. So uh, okay. <laughs> I believe. It's terrifying, right? It's t- and and Ginny just wields it. She's just like, "Hey, have this hex," right. you know. It's, you're welcome. You've kind of Acor- ruined my night by this <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh my god. Well, according okay. to because according to Pottermore, it doesn't have the bat bogey hex specifically, but it has the curse of the bogies, which I believe this is a spinoff of, um, which causes just an extremely runny nose and the the <laughs> cantation. No, well. The cantation for that is mucus ad nauseum. Oh my god! Oh no! Oh, I I, about that. I'm, I'm so not okay with this. <laughs> the the nose is a weapon to be used against you in, in in the magical world. Your own nose can turn against you, Allison. Though yes, your your point that it was Ginny and he and she attacked Malfoy. This is another one of those moments where I I smash my my Thor coffee cup and I go another. <laughs> Because <laughs> I, I, this is another, that's another one of those like background things that yes. contributes right. to why their relationship is a good one and why Ginny is such a great character. And it's just so relegated to the background and Harry right. being like, so what? Who cares? Sirius is dying. Um, <laughs> and it's just so overwritten. I mean, I, I, I guess when I, when we bring up Ginny, I'm trying to get to the core of why the fandom has problems with her. Oh, um, I love her. I don't get it. It's at just all. the movie. I mean, the it's beginning and end. But it's the movie. I don't think it's just the movie. I do think there is something to be blamed about how she is presented in the book, and not to, not saying that how she is presented makes her negative in any way, but perhaps because I've heard people say not just using the movie as their uh, proof for their feelings, but the books that they don't like Ginny and Harry together, and it's a pretty genuine feeling on people's part. And I, I, I think when we just see those kind of moments shoved off to the side, for me, that's what bothers me is that Ginny doesn't really, Ginny gets some great moments, but more, another, another. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, this had to be pointed out. Like I, I even read this and I skipped over the fact that she had attacked, like she attacked Malfoy. It wasn't anybody else. It was she. I mean, she's probably the most qualified to attack Malfoy in the room. Yeah. More than Ron and more than Neville. Definitely. Uh, Oh, absolutely, because yeah. she probably yeah, has true but, aim <laughs> compared to the yeah, rest of Yeah, <laughs> so there's that. We're getting kind of off topic. I want to bring it back. Um, there's this moment where – here we go. <laughs> so there's this moment where Ginny has to defend herself. I'm three years older than you were when you fought you-know-who over the Sorcerer's Stone, she said fiercely. And it's because of the Malfoys uh, – 
it's because of me. Malfoy is stuck back in Umbridge's office with giant flowing, flying bogeys attacking him. Ugh. So there you go, Mindy. That's, that's actually what happened. I'll stop <laughs> reading that part, okay? And then Harry says, I'll stop reading that. That's the last time that you've heard of it. And But Harry says, yeah, but. And then Neville interrupts. He says, we were all in the DA together. It was supposed to be about fighting you-know-who, wasn't it? And this is the first chance we've had to do something real. Or was that all a game or something? And now Harry is just like... Harry, like, words are failing him because now he's like, okay, we can finally probably start moving to get serious because it's been, like, hours at this point. And he's just like, man, I want to go, but there's, like, no way to get there. And also, I don't want you to come with me, but I don't want to argue it, but I don't want you to come with me, but I don't want to argue it. And they just come up with reason after reason why they should, you know, participate. Honestly, I think that's Neville's best line in the entire series. It's fantastic. It's so true. Was that all a game? Yes. Like, this is this is the real deal, like, we've been preparing for all year, Harry. You have to let us come with you. Yeah. I, I, I like this, that moment from Neville, definitely, because it, it, it's a nice way to grow his character and start showing him coming out of his shell. Because he, he wouldn't have said anything like that for oh, yeah. the last four years. But it's, it's just, so, again, though, back to my question about Harry. Like, this is on page 761. It's, it's Neville's quote that we just read. But at the bottom of the page, it says, uh, if he could have chosen any members of the DA in addition to himself, Ron, and Hermione to join him in the attempt to rescue Sirius, he would not have picked Ginny, Neville, or Luna. This is that's JKR writing about that. I'm like, why? Right. They're awesome. Yeah, I don't understand I maybe well, understand Neville and I maybe understand Luna, but I don't understand Ginny. No, I agree. But didn't she do well? I uh yeah. I I think maybe this is Harry's saving thing. Because even though I I think there's a mixture here of Harry's feelings about their aptitude, Harry's feelings about his own aptitude and that of Ron and Hermione's and Harry's need to protect people. Um, Because I think with all the adventures that he has gone on with Ron and Hermione, they've just subconsciously proven to Harry that they can hack it, um, whatever they go through. And it's, it's kind of like he's, he's requesting the, the specific team for his, it's, it's like a video game and you you can only choose, choose two other party members. And Harry wants the two that he's worked with before. Um, because he doesn't really, he's not sure of this skill set, even though he's seen it developed. I mean, it did take Neville a while to learn a lot of the things in the DA, and Luna's kind of just been on a really spotty track record from what little we get of her, because <laughs> she's not always paying attention. Um, so in that respect, <laughs> I guess Harry's concerns are moderately fair, if he's also Wait. mixing in his need to protect his is friends. It, yeah, is it just that he just doesn't want to deal with the possibility that they could get hurt and he would feel guilty about it? Yeah. I think there is also, though, because Mindy and Allison have kind of touched on it, too, that this that issue that Harry's anger and his need to not be slowed down, and he also figures that more people is more of a burden at this point. Well, and I, um, yeah. I, I would have to think that he's got to be a little concerned about some stealth. So we know that we're going yes. into the magic, of, the yeah. mystery of magic. And, you know, six people, seven, what is it, seven people is a whole lot harder to sneak in than three. Because, um, you know, he's got to assume that this... I would assume that there's something clandestine going on, regardless of what's happening to Sirius. And so I think the last thing they want to do is set off alarms. I mean, if I if I were going to write this chapter, that's that would be the angle I would have played instead of 
Oh, well, you guys fewer just is, you guys fewer just is better considering yeah. where they're going. Right, that they're better, you know, yeah. sneaking in and helping, you know, in a stealth way rather than clumsy fumbling, you know, Neville and Luna and her her silliness. And so it's like the author knows that this is going to descend into the final battle with a ton of people right. present, but but yet the characters don't, and so it makes more sense for there to be fewer of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, okay. he could he could have made she could have made the same argument and still have it come out the same way. Without it being so, like, why are you dissing these people so badly, you know, that are yeah. your friends? Well, and yeah. I, I think he, she, she does kind of touch on it when, whenever Luna opens her mouth, because Harry's most, seems to be most adamant not to bring Luna, not just because he doesn't know her, but he seems to think that everything she says is not pertinent. Um, (laughs) so, but you know, here's the antidote to that. She comes up with the Thestrals. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, this is just the last point of the chapter. I thought it was interesting and sick. Uh, the Thestrals, who, of course, we love and hate, uh, they just creep us out a little bit. Um, oh. It turns out that they have been attracted by the scent of blood, which is all over. It's Grob's blood that's all over Harry and Hermione. And they don't need to go looking for more. More just come at the continued smell of blood. But uh, Luna is able to prove her worth by saying a little bit about Thestrals including that they are particularly good at finding where they uh, where they need to go. I'm going to find the quote here in a minute, but actually it seems like they're all Hufflepuffs. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> um, but uh, that interesting uh, point, uh, I think Luna says Hagrid said that, about Thestrals, makes me wonder just kind of the device of Thestral magic. We, we can't imagine there have been wizards for centuries riding around on Thestrals. Um, but I'm wondering why, you know, sort of what makes Thestrals so great at, at getting to where they need to go? And could it be that they're tapping into some of the same navigational skills that the owls in the magical world have? What do you guys think? Well, it could be like some kind of, lots of animals have a, almost like a homing device where they just intuitionally know, intu- that is not a word. Intuitively. <laughs> Thank you. There you go. It's one of those days. Um, they They just know how to make their way home so maybe maybe it's something along those lines but in reverse where they just since they're magical they know how to they've got google maps in their head and they can figure it out (laughs) Hmm. it might be tied into their their death thing you know you can see them when you died and you haven't you know if they are kind of a a spectral of death which they're never called that but let's just say for argument that they are uh you know the idea that death as an anapomorphic creature you know can be anywhere at once like santa claus and has that ultimate sense so they're they're santa claus in reverse (laughs) that's pretty cool (laughs) it just got really cool like imagery actually i thought of the nightmare before christmas a little bit uh there uh here's here's the quote um the crumple horn snorkeck can't fly said luna in a dignified voice but they (laughs) they can and haggard says they're very good at finding places their riders are looking for um i just wonder what would have given these thestrals that trait you know, or like, why is that an additional, like, is it just cause it's convenient for plot? Um, or is there a reason in the, like in the nature of Thestrals? It's kind of a recurring theme on the, on the show. I do like to ask the nature of Thestrals question a lot because, um, we know that there is ambiguity as to who can see them and when, um, it's brought up in this chapter. Ron just, I think, uh, bruntly goes over it like, Oh, yeah, those are the things you can see if, if you've seen somebody snuff it. Right. Um, but, like, I just wonder what makes Thestrals Thestrals. Is there any information about that on Pottermore? 
Yeah, there is. It was released with the new... It doesn't really... It doesn't really say why. It just says that they're kind of just traditionally associated with death and bad omens, even though that's not really how they should be. I mean, obviously they're just a... To me, they're just another reinforcement of the theme that um, death is not something to be feared. Um, It's something to... Um, it's a, it's a natural part of your life, um, just in the way that the Thestrals end up being to magical people when people die, and that it's something that you have to come to terms with and accept. It's just a very, I think it's a fascinating, absolutely brilliant embodiment of that. I don't like the trait that they can just go places because they're I have an amazing sense of direction that has nothing to do with that. that. Is it just though? Like, couldn't it be more symbolic that? I'm now thinking a little bit ahead, but like that the Thestrals, these creatures of death, carry Harry off to witness the death of a family member. Oh, like yeah. he's he's being carried on the waves of you know these these creatures, ultimately to the to the end of this book where he suffers a great loss. Well, yeah, I almost feel like that's one of the major reasons she has the Thestrals do that because something I've always been confused about and. Another thing that frustrates me with this chapter is they're all like, oh my god, what could we possibly use to fly to the ministry? And I'm like, the Quidditch pitch and the broom cupboard, the broom shed is right over there. (laughs) Go get some brooms. (laughs) This isn't a hard question, but, but I, I, and, and it, it even seems more risky to me to fly on Thestrals because some of the group can't even see what they're flying on. Yeah, that would not be fun. That seems extremely (laughs) dangerous. Um. That would be almost as terrifying as having your boogers fly at you. I said I wouldn't wouldn't mention that again. You know, they could have also taken the flu network. I mean, that is unguarded now. It's an unguarded fireplace. Um, They should have tied Malfoy up. I mean, I I don't know. Maybe maybe he's just still being attacked, but I think they probably should have tied up some of the Inquisitorial squad if they didn't. I don't think it was explicitly mentioned. Well, and the thing with the Thestrals being able to hone in and find things, that's kind of like some a bit of random information that's dropped i feel that it's equatable in chamber of secrets to when dumbledore has the throwaway line about oh phoenixes have healing powers with their tears and they can carry really heavy stuff and it's, <laughs> i'm right. just telling you this just in case and it's like kind of the same thing when hagrid's like oh they have an amazing sense of direction i'm just saying this cause um it's going to be convenient later yes because that will right. come up later well, um, and, and can I just say, you know, coming at it from from a writer perspective, you know, you it's so easy to kind of pull threads and things kind of fall apart. So at some point, you have mm-hmm. to just kind of go, well, I love it anyways. You know, like the thing about Order of the Phoenix, you know, if Dumbledore had just told Harry right from the beginning <laughs> what his concern was and why yeah. he wanted to do Occlumency, the whole book would not happen. I mean, you know, so and that happens all the time in fiction where we have stories that if people would just talk to one another. Oh, gee, nobody would die. It's like Romeo and Juliet. I mean, you know, like for five seconds, <laughs> yeah. we could have had a happy ending. So but when you're writing the book, you know, it's hard to kind of make that stuff happen and it be believable. And so you end up with these kind of, oh, that's a very convenient arrival of a giant to save us. You know, those kinds of things happening. Well, so. and I think the reason we, I think, and I try to remind myself of that exactly, Mindy, every time I read the these books especially order because i'm most frustrated by order and i i think it is because it's these the prior four books i really do think spoiled their readers 
like just the level of I would agree 100% insane mm-hmm. thinking ahead and detail and Rowling has admitted herself that order was a big challenge for her to write I mean we had yeah. a huge three-year I believe gap mm-hmm. between yeah. Goblet and order and she struggled a lot with this one and it's it's kind of like it's kind of like you know when when Pixar was on the top and their movies are so good and everybody's like oh my god Pixar makes the best animated movies ever and then they made Cars 2 and everybody's like oh <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> like it's that was that was a movie and you made it and it's okay it's not like the worst thing ever it's still better than anything anybody else is doing but it's not it's it's not quite the level we've come to expect from you um, and right. I really do hate saying that for about rolling. I'm sure a lot of people are going. She's going to be offended when she listens. <laughs> no, yeah. well, but I, I would have to agree. And I think that book by the time we hit book five was when Harry Potter mania had really, really, truly hit the mainstream. Yes, uh, and that probably had an effect mm-hmm. on her and her writing. Uh, there's a lot of things that go on when you're when you're writing a book and with your editor, and you know. So those things were probably going on, but I I would say, and I totally lost my point. <laughs> <laughs> um, whatever rolling. it was it just went flying out of my brain R- rolling oh, and her and her i have it back i have it back. oh she got it so got it. so while there's there's lots of problems with this book i will say that emotionally i had this, some of the strongest reactions to the book and that hmm. is what saves it and makes it so wonderful you know the way i absolutely hated umbridge i still hate yeah. umbridge like i oh. just i hate her i like with my whole soul, I hate this woman. She's the perfect villain. <laughs> right. She's she's really good. Right. It's one of my favorite moments during this book. Like when when um the twins, you know, drop their swamp and you know, and they have all this revenge and, and so there's just emotionally it's still very, very, very satisfying despite its flaws. And that and that's okay with me. That works. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love book six, uh right behind book three in terms of my favorite book. So I, I definitely think that me too. that that really me too. went a long way for me after book five to not quitting Harry Potter with the fact that I loved <laughs> book six because the question is – like least Order of the Phoenix is like my least favorite book. So why didn't I stop? You know, It was my first book that I ever went to a midnight release for was Order of the Phoenix. But there are – emotionally, I couldn't handle it. It was so dark and serious. My favorite character died. So right. it's like how do we continue to go on? But the writing is so rich and like you're saying, like there's – there's so much still going on and it's like you have to find the answer to it. But by the time you get to Half the Prince, I feel like maybe the pressure was off or she, you know, became more able to, to deal with it. It's a tighter book and it's it is funny again, you know, in in a way that Order of the Phoenix just couldn't be because it had to be sort of the angst book. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it's just again my the frustration with this particular section, as we said, with chapter 30, and now it's come and rolled around back for chapter 32, is that almost pretty much half, if not more than half of the things that happen in chapter 32 in this chapter are set up in chapter 30. And right. I think okay. that's what really threw me was, and I really didn't realize it until we started discussing it on these last episodes, but I guess I expect Rolling to kind of do more elaborate foreshadowing than this happened two chapters ago. Now here are the consequences of it. Um, that's well, unusual it to me. You could argue that a little bit. So we know, so it's it's the playoff between um, setting stuff up and having the mystery. So Hagrid's mm-hmm. been gone for a long time and that we're supposed to really wonder why. So, you know, on the one hand, we, we have this mystery carrying through that we don't get solved until chapter 30. 
So I, you know, I, I guess I could, I think the groundwork is there. Just, mm-hmm. it's just, but because you don't know, because it's wrapped up in the mystery that Mamrie, that causes it to feel a little bit more like immediate payoff instead of what we're used to. Yeah. I would argue that anyways. Yeah. I mean, I guess there has to be some like immediate, oh, surprise. Right. Uh, too. Not just a surprise that's been built in the whole book, but it really, I think something would be lost if it didn't feel like this is in the moment. Um, much like, uh, I want to say the graveyard scene at Goblet of Fire probably best captures what I'm talking about, where you don't know what's going to happen. And Harry only barely escapes, but everything is like piling on top of each other. Um, you guys know what I'm saying? Like, we're building yeah, to the this, climax in this book. Yeah. And so things yeah. are just going to start falling right. like dominoes. Fall. Things are just going to fall. Right. Yeah. I mean, maybe though, in the, in the weird way, it has that bizarre effect where because the scene with the Zentars and Grop is so frustrating that you you're almost pulled into the same mentality as Harry where it's like could we move on please right um cuz you're <laughs> she is there she does work so hard in all of the books to put us in Harry's shoes and actually Harry doesn't do a lot of we don't get a lot of observations from Harry and a lot of dialogue from Harry in this last chapter um right so to make up for it we're kind of just evoking the feeling by the events so that we feel the same as Harry um to push it. Last point on this for me anyway. So I also think that, that JK suffers a little bit from pattern need to fulfill patterns. So if we mm-hmm. think about Gorp, Garp, Crop, I cannot say his name. <laughs> <laughs> the world according to who? Garp. Let's <laughs> call him Garp. No. Um, so, so he basically is our, he's our monster of the book for Hagrid. And I think that, you know, she just, you know, she feels like she's got to, hit these notes in each book, which I think with book six and definitely with book seven, she kind of gives that up a little bit. Uh, so maybe it was just kind of a side plots got carried away here in this particular book. And I think as readers, we would have been okay not having Her- Hagrid have his monster in this particular book. So that's just my theory on what happens. Oh, that's interesting. In, ter- in terms of grub, I think she's just like, well, Hagrid's got to have a new monster. So who, what are we going to do this time? Oh, well, let's have a brother. And that, you know, once you bring in that piece on the chessboard, you got to use it, you know, if you're writing the book. And so it, it just inevitably led to this extra re- e- unnecessary, probably, um, detours into the forest and all that stuff. Well, uh, at the end of this chapter, they are climbing onto festivals who are good finders. <laughs> 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 that wraps up chapter 33. So, of course, before we end our discussion this week, we have a podcast question of the week to present here. And since we've done such extensive discussion on this chapter and its place in the book, I'm going to ask about this chapter and pre- perhaps present some ways that you, the listeners, can be involved in revising the chapter. And my question is, we've presented a few options for how to revise this chapter with the actions taken in the forest, citing uncharacteristic moves by main characters. Some of our suggestions included things about Grop's involvement, Hermione's choices, changing the actions of the centaurs, and even Umbridge. Even the Order of the Phoenix film has presented an alternative. If you could present an alternative way to make these events play out, maintaining Rowling's flair for twists and recalling plot elements, would you utilize any of the suggestions we've presented on the show? What other ways could you tie everything together to get the dream team together and out of the forest? So, to answer our podcast question of the week, make sure and head over to the Alohomora main site and get your get your writing pencils out and get really creative with this one. 
All right, and we'd like to thank Mindy for being our special guest today. You were a great guest. And um, can you tell our listeners where to find your books? Uh, yeah, my books are available wherever books are sold, actually. Barnes & Noble, Amazon, um, the Book Depository, indie bookstores. Mindy, do you have a website? I do, www.mindyarnett.com. Yeah, and uh, what, what were your book series again? Uh, so my first series is the Arkell Academy series, starting with The Nightmare Affair. Uh, it's about 16-year-old Dusty Everhart, who happens to be a perfectly normal half-human girl uh, and half-nightmare, as in the folkloric creature that sits on your chest when you're trying to sleep and gives you bad dreams, which, by the way, is a really crappy job to have, uh, especially <laughs> for your teenage girl. Hey, hey, she's 16 and employed, right? That's well, got to count for something. She's employed by her magic kind government, uh, but they Send her oh, okay. to go and dream feed, as it's called, on um, certain people. And she is sent one night to dream feed on her crush from her old human high school, a boy named Eli. So she's completely mortified. Uh, and then when she's doing this, she discovers that he's dreaming about a murder taking place at her current school, which is a school for magic kind only that he should not even know exists. Well, the very next day, uh, the murder actually, she finds out the murder has taken place uh, and that she and Eli have the ability to predict the future through signs and symbols in his dreams. Um, so they are tasked by the Magic Kind government to use this ability to identify the killer and stop him before he strikes again. That is awesome. Thank you. And my other series is uh, not at all fantasy. It's science fiction. Uh, it's a Avalon. It's about a group of teenage spaceship thieves. Um, the main character, Jeff, is looking for a way out of the criminal life uh, because it's kind of bad. Um, and they are sent off uh, to recover a spaceship that's gotten lost in the middle of space with an area, a reputation, uh, kind of like the Bermuda Triangle of space. So that one I call uh, Firefly meets Guardians of the Galaxy. Ooh, <laughs> or Firefly nice... meets the Godfather. So whichever way you like it. That's a nice combo. And well, I had so much fun being here today. Just thank you so much for this opportunity. Oh, this was fabulous. Thank you. It is it's great a pleasure. To have you on. This is an opportunity that we do extend to all listeners of our show. And we want to remind you, the listener, that if you do want to be a guest on our show, you can. Please visit the Be On The Show page at alohomora.mugglenet.com. There are uh, some requirements, all the guidelines, everything, suggestions from us are all on that page. So definitely check out Be On The Show, and you too may hear yourself on a future episode of Alohomora. And of course, there are plenty of ways to get in contact with us, more ways than to get in contact with Sirius Black, apparently. Not by Magical Mirror. <laughs> but you can get in touch with us on Twitter at MN. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore. Our Tumblr account MN Alohomora Podcast, our phone number 206-GO-ALBUS or 206-462-5287 where you can call and leave us a message. You can also leave us a short message on Audioboom, previously known as Audioboo, but they have axioed themselves an M at the end of that. Um, and uh, you can actually find that through our website, alohomora.mugglenet.com. Audio Boom is a free service to leave us a small recording. All you need is a microphone for that. Please make sure and keep your messages on Audio Boom to us uh, under 60 seconds so that we can make sure to feature them on the show. And while you are on alohomora.mugglenet.com leaving us a message, head on over to our <laughs> store to check out our sweatshirts, long sleeve tees, tote bags, flip-flops, and so much more. Because Don't, don't buy flip-flops right now. No, we probably <laughs> want the sweatshirt right now. Hey, unless you're in the um, Southern Hemisphere. That's I true. No. <laughs> <laughs> we also have ringtones that are free and available on the website, so go ahead and check those out. And, of course, there is the uh, smartphone app, which is available both on this side of the pond and the other. 
prices do vary, but it's available for Android and iOS devices. On this app of ours, you can find transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. Uh, this has been a blast. I am Eric Skull. I'm Michael Harley. And I'm Allison Sigurd. Thank you for listening to episode 111 of Alohomora. Uh Open the Dumbledore. Watch out for the bogeys. of Hermione that brings us into the next subject um which was there was lots of Hermione love this week oh my gosh I'm sorry hold on <coughs> sorry <laughs> let me start that over that happens um, <laughs> oh my gosh um you okay you need some water? <laughs> no I'm good I'm good sorry <laughs> sure? I'm good I'm not gonna get die some water it's cool um yeah no I'll grab some in a minute but anyway starting over